0: Go ahead and open, if you will, to the book of Acts for me, if you've got a copy of God's Word. If not, you can grab one from the chair in front of you, hopefully. <clears throat> Acts chapter 4 is where we're going to be this morning. You know, I, guys, my spirit just feels so weird today. I don't know what it is. It, it could just be the crumble cookies from yesterday. I don't know. Um, you know, I, I make light as a way of coping. Uh, sincerely, I, I do not feel uh, right right now. And... Um, I lean on God's work every Sunday when I pray. I mean genuinely, I pray that prayer every Sunday, but today, especially we're talking about something that I don't know like i'm I don't feel as passionately about it as I should, and so I'm just giving it to God and um, expecting him to do every once in a while he just reminds me that I'm nothing um, and only something because he's something. and so today. I just want that to be, can you just jive with me on that and and just receive this from the Lord, okay, because it's hard for me to bring it today. So uh, Acts 4 is where we're going to be. We're going to look at a few of the verses you'll see behind me uh, on the screen uh, in just a few moments. You know we're talking about unity this morning, and specifically community. You can't use the word community without saying the word unity. And as Pastor Chris has already mentioned, unity is is sort of a binding. It's bringing together, and a community is a people group. So put it together. It's people that are that made one. And obviously the church is called to be one and to be a community. And unity in a relationship is vital. I remember when I went off to college uh, when I was 18. I went to the University of Alabama, and I'd never met my roommate before, and so we went, We had like an apartment situation uh, in a dorm, and so we had a kitchenette, and then uh, you know we shared a bedroom, and we had a little living room space. And I didn't know him, and that's always a you know rolling the dice, right? So, uh, but he was cool. Uh, and, you know, we obviously had very different priorities, but uh, he was cool and laid back. Uh, he was a big party guy. I wasn't that at all. Um, I, so anyway, we were very different, and yet we, we we lived together for like a day, and then we were like, we we don't have any food, so we should probably go grocery shopping together. <laughs> So we did. Cameron was his name. And me and Cameron go to the, like, it was like Bruno's or something in Tuscaloosa. And uh, we're like, how do we do this? You know, because we never, like, we were like the most irresponsible people on earth. So it's like, we have to buy our own food. Yeah, you do. So we had some money and we were like, let's just like, shop together, and we'll just buy together, and then we'll share together. We'll just share our stuff, and we'll share our sandwich meat, and we'll share our our Hawaiian punch and Gatorade, and we'll just share, right? And we'll have unity as a a roommate situation. That didn't work very long, Um, the whole we will just share stuff thing. It it didn't take long for us to realize that I was going to buy my groceries, and Cameron was going to buy his groceries, because uh, for them to be our Twinkies, I didn't get many of them, and for them to be our pizza rolls, he didn't get many of those. And so we learned a lesson really quickly that um, commitment to roommate unity had a limit for us. We needed to be divided on our possessions if we were going to have a school year of peace. That's not the church. That's not the church. We need to be united on all things, even our possessions. Things tend to get choppy when you have to put money and possessions into the same pot and live with a spouse or a roommate or a business partner's decision-making, and we are often wrongly defined by what we have instead of the way that we use and spend and give what we have. Guys, the early church, and this is why I start that, because we're, we're clingy about our possessions. We really are. We all are, even if the most generous person still says, you know, uh, maybe I don't want anybody to just drive my car, right? Because it's uh, kind of possessive about my possessions. What's so radical about the early church is that the early church was so committed to the Holy Spirit's unifying vision and leadership is that they even combined possessions. They combined their possessions. Something that is the most radical to us. They said, let's put it all together. People that they have only just met saying, we're brothers and sisters. The church was radical then. It's meant to be radical now. The church could be a moral and good body. But when following Jesus came to the hard stuff, like sharing their possessions, how would the church respond? Would it be unified? Guys, God did not just call fellowship to be a moral people. He didn't call us to just be good Christians. He called us to be one. He called us to be like him, one even in three, perfect in unity. And so, as we have titled this series of messages through the book of Acts, starting in chapter 1, verse 1, to the point we are now forward, contingent on us going forward as one community, is that little part that you find in that word, which is being unified. So, let's look at Acts chapter 4, verses 32 through 37 this morning. Acts 4, 32 through 37 says this. Now, Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, a Levite, a native of Cyprus, sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' Where we've been, and if you haven't been here with us the last few weeks, where we've been the last few weeks is in this narrative in the book of Acts in chapters 3 and 4, where Peter and John come up with this guy, they're at the temple, and he can't walk, he hasn't been able to walk for 40 years since he was born, and they powerfully speak over him in the name of Jesus, in his power, and his authority, rise up and walk, and he did. And so for three and four chapters, chapters, three and four, you see them walking through this narrative they're then put on trial and, and questioned by the Sanhedrin, a governing body. And so it says they respond with boldness, even in the face of intimidation and threat. They say, we got to follow Jesus, even if it means we stand opposed to man. And then they go back with their friends, which we, which we saw last week. They go back to the church and they say, Hey guys, look what happened. We got threatened. Isn't that awesome? <laughs> God, give us boldness. That's what they pray for. Give us boldness. You're going to have opposition. Give us boldness to keep on moving forward. And then we end that narrative at the end of chapter four, which we're going to reach the end here today. But there's this little break, sort of like an update. Every once in a while, Luke, who's the author of the book of Acts, gives us sort of like a checkpoint and says, oh, by the way, here's where we are. Oh, by the way, here's where we are. And today is an update. It's a brief little check on the progress report of the church. The last sort of, sort of kind of update was in chapter 4, verse 4, when it said, Many of those who had heard the word believed, and the number of the men came to about 5,000. That's not including the women and children. So you're talking about a faith community reaching from 12 apostles to suddenly maybe 10,000 people rapid, right? And just in a few months, that's a little bit of an update, but the last real update was at the end of chapter two. Look back at that with me. Chapter two, this is the last progress report that Luke gives us. It says, and they devoted themselves to the apostles teaching and the fellowship to the breaking of bread and the prayer. So here's the pause in the action. Here's what the church was doing. And awe came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles and all who believed were together. Listen to this. Should sound familiar to what we just read. And had all things in common. It's a common thread here in the last update. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Again, that should sound familiar. It's part of the progress report we're going to read today. And day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, which is where they would meet, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God, having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number Let's see, I'm missing their number day by day, those who are being saved. The reason I read that little progress report is because of what we saw right there in verses 44 and 45, which is almost verbatim what we're going to read today in the passage we're looking at. It says that they were devoted to the apostles' teaching. The Word of God was the center thing when they gathered together. It says they were devoted to the fellowship, which is not the name of their church. It's the name of our church, but really it's the description of all churches. We're to be a partnership, a a camaraderie, a partnership, not because we got things in common like hair color and and age and, and ethnicity and lifestyle and, uh, I don't know, politics. But instead, the common thread of believers in a fellowship is not any of those things, it's Jesus. Jesus is that which binds us. And they were devoted to that, to that fellowship around who they were in Christ. And it led to them eating together and praying together and studying the word together and gathering together. It says that they had all things in common in verses 44 and 45. We read just a moment ago in chapter 2. And now when it says they had all things in common, it doesn't mean that they were the perfect match. Like, we just have everything in common. What a great church, right? Where we just all think the exact same. That No, that's uh-uh, right. That could not be further. That's not true of any church, right? If it's, a, if it's true of a church, they're not doing a very good job being the church. Because the church is made up of people from everywhere, all walks of life, all different backgrounds. And we hear some of that in our testimonies when they're read in the baptism waters. They're all different, right? But you know what? They're all the same, aren't they? They're all different, and yet there's one common thread that is woven between all of them. They had all their thoughts and opinions not in order, but they had their possessions. Their food is what it's talking about. All things in common. They're going off of what God had established in His people in the Old Testament. Deuteronomy 15:4 starts by saying, "But there will be no poor among you. There will be no poor." Among you, right before this, that's Deuteronomy 15:4. right before that at the end of Deuteronomy 14. Again, this is God's instructions for His people. He gives him instructions about the third, not the first or second tithe, which would be 20 percent of their possessions, but a third tithe that they would receive every three years. So news flash, if we weren't here in September when we talked about giving, the early church or, or the, the Old Testament people of God, when they gave tithes, they gave 10 percent, and then 10 percent. And then every three years, another 10%. They have 23% annually of their income. And that third tithe that happened every three years had a very specific purpose. And it was right along with what Deuteronomy 15.4 says. It was a third tithe to be received so that the poor people didn't stay poor. Because God enthusiastically felt this way. That there should be no poor among you. Deuteronomy 15.4. For as long as God has had a people, his people have been instructed to step up to the plate, and to minister to one another's not just spiritual needs, but physical needs. And that mentality produced not worried and bitter hearts, begrudgingly giving, saying, I don't know, I I can't give. I haven't gotten a paycheck. No, what 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 it produced was excited, cheerfully generous hearts, because you know what? God still provided for them. They still were taken care of. And so as a result, we see not that their number shrunk because it was hard to give, their number multiplied because God was creating a new others-focused community. This passage, y'all, is about the church, not just the church then, but it's about the church now, a radical community of God's people. And so we're going to look at a couple of things this morning on the screen that sort of define a community of believers. And I could put, you know, 50 things on this list, but we're going to look at just two of those things as, as it's pertinent to our passage this morning. Number one, what defines the church community? Stewardship, not ownership. Stewardship, not ownership. Some of you guys may have uh, done house-sitting before, like if somebody has pets or something, you may have to ask uh, maybe somebody to come stay at your house to do some house-sitting. When I was in college, I was asked to do, do house-sitting for a couple that uh, love their pets a lot, okay? Maybe too much some of you guys, maybe a little, maybe a little too much. Uh eh, we won't go there. but That would really hurt some of your feelings, wouldn't it? Uh, but they really, really loved their pets. There was a couple of dogs and they were beautiful dogs and they were really well behaved. And so honestly, I didn't do much house sitting. I did a bunch of sitting in the house because the dogs were, were good dogs. And so uh, I loved doing house sitting because, the, you know, pe- people were, were generous to me and they let me do that and I was grateful. Uh, but th- usually when you do house sitting, the family says the same thing, especially if they're generous. And they'll say, hey, look, you know, make yourself do everything in the refrigerator. And for a young college student, you're like, jackpot, because uh, they usually stock it with the stuff that I like and everything. But here's the thing. When they say, make yourself to everything in the refrigerator, you know what they don't mean? That. They don't actually mean that. If, I, if they came home from their vacation after a week, and their refrigerator was literally empty, they would not like that. Because while they say, make yourself to everything in the refrigerator, it's not really what that phrase means, is it? Or maybe it's said differently, and, and again, I think of a family that, that said this, and they said, hey, look, any, any bed in the house, it's yours. Our bed is your bed. Not really, right? Not, that's not really true, because if they came home and I had taken a chainsaw to it, what would they say? What did you do to our bed? You loser, right? That's something like that. Maybe a little bit worse, actually. Because while you say those things, what do you really mean? They're not, they're not making me the owner, are they? Our refrigerator is your refrigerator. Not really. They're calling me a steward. You, you have responsibility over this, and you can use this responsibly. That's what a steward is called to do. And you give ownership to others, but not really. My couch is your couch. If somebody comes in and puts their muddy shoes all over it, you're going to say, dude, that's my couch. Because it's a stewardship statement. Guys, stewardship is not ownership. It is management of something entrusted to your care. The owner will return, right? You How you manage what was... Yours, quote unquote, will be called into account. And Jesus constantly told parables like this. The master comes back to his servants. Uh, a, a, an estate owner comes back to those that are given care over his place. Always the master comes back and says, how did you manage it? How did you manage it? How did you steward it? And they were always called to account because, you know, at the end of the day, stewards are not owners. Guys, the principle is that we, you and I, are given so much we say every good and perfect gift comes from above. Every dollar in your bank account, every piece of furniture in your house, every piece of food in your cabinet. You know who it belongs to? It belongs to God. And you're a steward of that. He has given it to you, but you are the owner of nothing. You're a steward. We are given much, but we are not owners. We are managers of something entrusted to our care. And guys, that was to be the way that Christians viewed what God had given them then, and it's also to be the way that Christians view what God has given us now. Look at verse 32. He says, now the full number of those who believed were of one heart and soul. Don't miss that. One heart, one soul, and no one said that any of the things that belonged to him was his own, but they had everything In common. That's exactly. It sounds like exactly what it is, guys. The full number of them. It says the full number of them. The full number of those who believed. Again, we're talking about around maybe ten thousand people or so. They had one heart and one soul. Are you kidding me? Ten thousand people. We can't get ten people to have oneness, right? And yet, this church family, which is a very large family that met in separate places, were one. It's a profound statement. How are they one? Because they were of one heart. And one soul. Those, those two words don't mean literally the, 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 the organ beating in their chest. It means the inner self of who they really are at the very essence was one. You know, every strawberry that you may pick out of the refrigerator is different. It may be a different size, it may be a different shape, it may be a different color. It may even slightly taste differently, but I bet you I know what it's gonna taste like when you eat it a strawberry. You know why? Because it may look differently, but in its very essence, A strawberry is a strawberry. That's why you call it a strawberry. Guys, we are all in so many different ways. In this room, we are different, are we not? Look around for a second. Look around. You should talk to these people once in a while, by the way. Some of you guys aren't looking around. Shame on you. You should talk to these people once in a while. This is your church family, man. And I know it's hard to keep up with names because of how rapidly this room is exploding and expanding, but I wish it was literally expanding. Anyway, we'll talk about that later. But I say that to say Guys, we are one, and we're different. You got white collar, you got blue collar. You got born and raised here in Meridian or in Mississippi, you got transplants. You got people that are young and people that are, to use Terrell's word, more mature. <laughs> That's what I got from Terrell. Huh? He, he taught me that one. The point is, we got a lot of differences in here. Earlier this week, I was at a state evangelism conference down in uh, on North Hill Street, and I ran into several pastor friends, and one of the guys I ran into was your former pastor. If you've been here a while, is your former pastor, Corey Fontaine. I love Corey. He's a good guy. Uh, and he loves the Lord, and he loves to preach, and I love his heart. Um, but he and I are very different, and yet we're the same. Uh, I went up to Corey and was shaking his hand, and, and as I was kind of walking away from him, he leaned forward to me and he goes, I'm going to do an impression of him. He says, <clears throat> I like them britches. <laughs> That's what he said. Sorry. I like them britches. It was more like that. I had on these pants that I liked them too, but it was funny to hear him say that because you know what I would never say? Britches. <laughs> I would never say that. And it just reminded me that like you guys, if you've been here a while, like you must have had like whiplash when I came because we were very different. But you know what guys? We're not. We're the same. Because I know when he was up here standing behind this, st- behind this pulpit, you know what you heard every Sunday? The same message that I'm telling you every Sunday. We're different We talk different, sound different, look different, but we're the same. And the same is true for all of us in this room that are in Christ. Look very different, talk very different, from different backgrounds, experience different things, but we are the same. Why? Because we're of one heart and one soul. Amen? One heart. And one soul, the core, why is that? The core of who we are is the same core. A great passage that talks about this is Ephesians 4, 1 through 6. It's talking about people, how we're to live. And Paul says, walk in a manner, the middle of verse 1, walk in a manner worthy of the calling to which you have been called, with all humility and gentleness, with patience. Listen, bearing with one another in love. Listen to the unity here. Bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain, what? Unity in the spirit. Unity in the spirit, in the bond of peace. Notice bond of peace, putting together. Verse 4 of Ephesians 4 says, There is one body and one spirit, just as you were called to the one hope that belongs to your call. One Lord, one faith, one baptism, one God and Father of all who is over all and through all and in all. Many of us, a lot of differences. We are one. One heart. One soul. Because the purpose there to see is that what makes us the same is greater than what makes us different. What makes us the same is far greater than what makes us different. We are unified even if we are not uniform. We're one. That same verse, verse 32, says they had everything in common, which again does not mean that they all have shared. They all hunted together and fished together, and all, that's not what it means, right? It means that they had their possessions in common. It's a phrase in the Greek-speaking world for portraying the ideal human gathering. It was sort of like the way that we would talk, call utopia. They would say everybody just loves everybody, everybody has everything in common, and then the Greek-speaking world that was just the ideal society. Is that you just we all just share. And everybody has everything in common, and it's not, they're not sticking you up and saying, give it here, we need to share it with everybody else, like you know, communism, which we'll talk about in a second. That's not what they're saying. They're saying they were one. They shared voluntarily with one another. And in the Greek-speaking world, they loved that. It was a Greek way of reinforcing, though, a Jewish tradition. Hear both of those. Jews and Gentiles both believed the same thing, which is that the ideal human society is one that sustains by giving and receiving, voluntarily, generously giving and receiving. Guys, the church community, in other words, is a community as God designed it to be. You want to know what the perfect community looks like? This, right here. There's nothing else. And to my knowledge, I could be wrong. I don't think there's anything else in our entire human experience where people so different come together for one main thing. You could say sports, but that comes and goes. You don't go every time. You don't go every week. You don't see the same people. You don't build relationships with the guy cheering next to you. Maybe you do, that'd be kind of weird, but, you know, teach their own, I guess. The point is that this is special. This is community as God designed it to be. And the result of that is that they did not believe that they were owners of what they owned. They were stewards. Guys, the principle is that God does not need your money. He doesn't need your money. He doesn't need your possessions. The universe is at his disposal. But he desires for you and I to learn the value of holding loosely to what has been given to us. To learn that there is a greater blessing in giving than receiving. Because this is the ideal community. And it's marked by giving. If you look at your monthly spending and your monthly giving, could you in good conscience say that it is clear on paper that your money belongs to more, more to God than it does to you. Do your possessions exist for your pleasure or to be a blessing to others? Guys, the community of our body of believers, it will flourish not because of an amount given, but because of hearts that are aligned to the God of our one heart. Cheerful, generous, sacrificial giving. You know, we belong to a nation, the United States of America, but we belong to a nation within a nation, and we have a a higher loyalty. You can call it a kingdom even, but don't we belong to a greater kingdom than the kingdom we live in, and we have a greater loyalty? We belong to a bigger community than the community that we live in. In our community, our kingdom, our nation, the church, is marked by generous stewardship, not selfish ownership. Stewardship, not ownership. And the motivation of this kingdom mentality is not just do-goodness. It's not just morality. It is the very essence of the gospel, which is the second thing that I want you to see. That life-giving action comes from life-giving message. Life-giving action comes from the life-giving message. Life-giving action comes from the life-giving message. This generous community is not just about human virtue. It's not about welfare. It's not about philanthropy. It has to be paired with the resurrection of Jesus. That's why the very next thing we're about to see is the word testimony. Good work without the good news is vain. Good work without the good news is vain. And so in verse 33, look with me at the the power behind the work that they're doing. And with great power. The apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and great grace was upon them all. In context, the apostles are all testifying about a specific thing. That's not just a general testimony. They're specifically testifying about uh, the witnessing of the resurrection of Jesus. And it was a powerful resurrection. That God was moving because they were recollecting what they had seen God do. It says, great grace was upon them all. The word for grace there would be translated grace in this verse. It was translated favor in the passage we looked at just a moment ago, Acts 2, 47. that, That all people looked on them with favor with grace, and it's also translated grace in Acts 6, 8, when Stephen is getting ready to be martyred, and it says that Stephen was full of grace and power. Why do I say that? Because it is linked, this grace from on all of them, was linked to his people, God's people, testifying about God. Now, is this favor from God or favor from men? I think it's both. We have evidence of both. God was pouring out his favor on this church, and people were being favorable toward one another. Guys, the principle is that when God's people testify, God pours out his favor and man is stirred favorably. Do we not see this? Do we not see this in baptism? God pours out his favor. That's been obvious. But also, don't you, do you sense something in your heart when you see this occur? People give their testimony. Do you, do you sense something? Is, it, is there this outpouring of favor in your heart, stirring your affections It's true for many of us, I think, because we have not literally witnessed the physical resurrection of Jesus. We have not physically witnessed the appearance of Jesus, but the broader principle is that there is power in people testifying to what they have firsthand experienced God do in their lives. And so I'm going to ask you a question, and it is not a rhetorical question. This is time for audience participation. Is there power in testimony? Amen, there is. Amen, there is. As God is multiplying his favor on us. And I think it's in large part because of what you just said. There is power when people testify. There's power in that. When people testify to what God has done and what God is doing. He poured out his grace on our church family in so many ways last year, and he's not finished with that. And a huge reason why is because of the bold testimonies of God's work in our lives. You know why? Because when people testify, great grace is upon them. God's favor is poured out on them. You can kind of link that to last week's message, right? Boldness. That takes boldness, y'all. When people are bold and testifying to what God has done, it's not rocket science, man. We see proof in the pudding, as they say. God works in that. When people boldly testify, it's contagious. But I'll say this, that testimony should not just produce powerful church services. It should produce powerful acts of service among one another, which is exactly the next verse. This is not just a verse about giving testimony. This is a verse about testimony of God's people producing service among one another. Look at verses 34 and 35. It says, there was not a needy person among them. With all this outpouring of favor, the result of that, not a needy person among them. For as many as were owners of lands or houses sold them and brought the proceeds of what was sold and laid it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to each as any had need. That sounds pretty radical, right? I mean, what do you do with that? Uh, as, as a 21st century Christian, that sounds pretty radical. What are, we, are we all supposed to be poor for one another? <laughs> no, I don't think that's what that means. It also may just cause us to raise an eyebrow is this forced communism is one of the translations or the commentaries that I read. It seems like that, right? It's not forced communism. And the church did not collectively decide to be homeless. For goodness sake, they met in house churches. People welcomed them in and said, let's meet in my home. Though it was a generous community. If you look at the rest of the New Testament, it is clear that people in the church had possessions. They had homes. They had land. People like Lydia and Jason and Philip and Philemon and you can go on and on. Barnabas is about to be singled out at the end of this little passage we're looking at. And by the way, he would not have been singled out for his generosity if he had not had the opportunity to be so of his own volition. In other words, they didn't force people to give up their stuff. They did it on their own. And that's why Barnabas's generosity is singled out and mentioned in the verse we're going to read in just a moment. It seems that better said, the church was known for voluntarily see or selling off their extra so that people that did not have could have. Guys, It's radical sacrificial generosity. And Luke follows this statement with contrasting two examples, Barnabas, and then what we're going to look at next time in chapter five. But look at verses 36 and 37. Thus Joseph, who was also called by the apostles Barnabas, which means son of encouragement, he's a Levite, a native of Cyprus. It says he sold a field that belonged to him and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. This is is a guy that we're going to read about quite a bit when we continue in this book. Barnabas is a guy that did missionary journeys with Paul. He's the cousin of the author of the gospel of Mark, Mark, John Mark, which we're going to read about in Acts. He's John Mark's cousin. And so this is a guy that that had a presence right in the, the early church. He'd be Paul's companion on mission. So why introduce him here? Well, Luke deliberately places the account of Barnabas' generosity just before what we're going to look at next week, which is the story of Ananias and Sapphira's selfish deception. And he's going to kind of counterbalance these two and say, look at this generosity and look at this greed and selfish deception. You see, Ananias and Sapphira, which I'm going to mention it here. We'll talk about it more at length next time. They sell some land, this married couple, they sell some land, and they give Peter part of the money, telling him that they are donating the full buying price. Peter honestly doesn't seem to care about the money. The money belongs to them, and they are free to do with it as they choose, but their lie that they tell reveals a deeper issue. Look real quickly at the first part of chapter 5 in verses 3 and 4, because I think it helps us to understand what we're looking at here. Verse 3 says, But Peter said, Ananias... Why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and keep back for yourself part of the proceeds of the land? While it remained unsold, this this is very important. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? You hear that, right? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And he said, and after it was sold, was it not at your disposal? You hear the voluntary aspect of that, right? It's yours, Ananias, which leads us to the question, what did you do wrong then? He says, why is it that you have contrived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to man, but to God. Here's what that means. He wasn't being forced to sell it. He says it was your own. You do it at your disposal. The problem wasn't even that he held some back. The problem was that Ananias and Sapphira selfishly sinned by holding back a portion of the gift. Listen, while claiming to be giving it totally to the church. That's the problem. Is that they were claiming to be one thing. And yet, by their actions, they were being something else, very secretively and deceptively. They identify with the church, but display only a facade of the unity that Jesus' followers had become known for. In other words, guys, they were among the church, but they were not living as part of the church because they did not give obediently. There's a lot that we can do with that. The early church looks different than the church today in many, many, many ways. The needs change, but the principles remain. The principle in this remains. Are you a good steward? Not an owner. Are you a faithful steward? Are you a giver? Are we caring for the needs of one another? And again, you can put a dollar on that, but I think it goes beyond that. But maybe we can reduce it and say it does certainly have something to do with the bottom dollar. That's the way that we determine value, monetarily speaking. Are we caring for the needs of one another? Are you a giver or are you just a receiver in this church? You know, we have a, I wish I would have brought it in here. We have a, a budget. We looked at that last week in a business meeting, right? And on there, you know what it says on there? There's a line item under missions. It says benevolence budget. And it's good. Right, Danny? It's good to have a benevolence budget. Pra- practically, practically speaking, it's good to have a benevolence budget. Functionally, it makes sense. But listen, can you can I just tell you something? There must not be a budgetary cap on the way that we meet the needs of one another. That's why, by the way, when we exceeded our benevolence budget last year, we didn't say, well, tough. <laughs> we can't do anything. You know what we did? We got in here and we said, we got to bump this thing up because we got some needs that we need to meet. Because that is a line item, wouldn't you say, that we can, we can make some adjustments on that one. Because we can functionally, and it makes sense functionally to have that in place, but church, we have a greater obligation than having a budgeted benevolence. We're called to meet one another's needs. And if it means that we sacrifice and take something else out so that we can do more of that, it's important that we are a benevolent church because we are called to meet the needs of one another. And by the way, your benevolence committee is your deacons. By the way, in Acts chapter 6, uh, the apostles get really overwhelmed and they say, dude, we have so much stuff that we have to distribute in these, all this money and these possessions. We can't distribute this food and make sure everybody's taken care of. You know what they do? they put together seven guys. Later, they call them deacons, and they say, we need you guys to do this for us. And at fellowship, your deacons are the team that get together and say, where are the needs? We need to meet these needs. Let's take care of these needs. Benevolence. And look, as the deacons discern those needs, we don't want to enable a fool or a swindler or cripple people with perpetual handouts But we also have a biblical duty to ensure that none of our people suffer the lack of basic physical needs. But I'll be real with you, man. A lot of y'all aren't on the benevolence committee. But you do not need to be on a committee to exercise benevolence. And every act of benevolence sure better not come through the benevolence committee. Because all of us are called to meet the needs of one another. If you see a need, and God may be prompting you, meet a need. And I would say on the other side of that same coin, if you have a need, voice the need. Because not only are you needlessly struggling, you may even be keeping an opportunity to be a blessing from someone God would so prompt to bless you. Do you see how this is part of the community of believers? Is that we meet one another's needs. But you know what must happen? The need must be voiced. Guys, this will bring our church closer together, not further apart. Meeting the needs of one another is a deeply scriptural blessing. And so I'll ask you again, are you a good steward? Are we giving to a cause bigger than ourselves? You know, part of that cause right now, it's not benevolence. But I'm going to be honest, when you give to this church family, financially speaking, especially last week when we talked about our building plans and long-range planning, and as Kevin mentioned (laughs) last time that we're not the long-range planning committee, we are the emergency planning committee. Because in reality, what we do in this room, unfortunately, in some ways is limited by the space that we have in this room. And this isn't just a, a place where we come and, and enjoy ourselves, and good thing the HVAC unit works, and you know, we have budget things to, to, to do the things that we do, because this is a mission center. It's a hospital. And when people come into this room, there's, there's soul care the same way that a hospital bed is there for physical care, this is a soul care room. And so investing in this place, physical location, is not just saying, let's just, let's just pad the walls and make amazing things happen. Let it, let it be nice and decorative. Guys, we have cut so many corners to make this room functional because we did not have the money to make it beautiful. And it is beautiful. But these walls are not made of the greatest material. And these stage lights are not the brightest and the best. But you know what's more important? is the ministry that it accomplishes. We can take an L on making it look fancy if we can say we have made it functional because this is a ministry building. It's not just a church building. It's where the church gathers, but it's where ministry happens. Our mission is ministering to people of all kinds, and this is where we do that. And so I'm going to say something. Yes, I want you to give. I want you to financially give, and I really want you to give to our future building plans. Because right now, we're in a situation to where people will turn around in the parking lot and go home. And that's limiting the ministry. People will say, there's nowhere to sit when we go there. Let's go somewhere else. And that's limiting the ministry. And so giving to the church, even when it comes to physical needs like the ones that we're talking about, guys, that is the mission of the church because we are limited in how we can minister if we are not giving, if we're not giving. And you can draw that conclusion in many different places. You pay your personnel because your personnel ministers to people. We have kitchen supplies, which costs money because our kitchen ministry ministers to people. Sure ministers to my family and so many others. We have Sunday school books and children's supplies because they minister to real people. We have a playground because it ministers to our children. We have a a church bus because it is part of a ministry We have benevolence, as we mentioned, Center for Pregnancy Choices that we give to, all of it because it's not about a dollar. It's about a ministry. And we're part of the ministry. We are called to financial stewardship because we're not owners, we are stewards. So, my encouragement to you is to be part of the community, to be part of that. And to be part of that, yes, you need to be a giver because you're called to be part of the community, not just as a receiver. But as a giver. And I'll take from Ananias and Sapphira a principle that I'm going to let you know about. That is this. You can come to church and not be part of a church family. On the outside, it looked like they were doing all the things that made them belong, and then Peter calls them out because they were not unified. They were not one of them. Guys, God did not call any of us to attend church, but he called all of us to be the church. Are you part of the church or are you coming to church? There's a difference. And what I'm about to say, <clears throat> I'm not talking about guests that are here. If you're new to fellowship and you're checking us out, this is not for you. But if you've been coming to this church for a long time, for a while, and you've been kind of on the fence about joining and membership, I don't want to go to a social club. It's not about a social club. Membership is of the body. Okay, It's a biblical term, 1 Corinthians 12. But if you've been coming for a while and you've never really committed yourself, you've been coming to church, but you're not part of the church, I want you to hear me something. say something. If you come at 10 a.m. and leave as soon as we adjourn, you are going to church, but you are not in church. Because you're not part of what's happening here. You're taking something and giving nothing. You're coming to church, but you've not made this your church family. And you can be, by the way, You can be a member. You can be on the roll. You can be a member of this church family or this church on on, on paper, but not be a part of the church family. You can be be on the roll. You can say, I've joined. I walked up there, and he said, and you just come and receive, and then you leave. That's not a family member. That's a taker. God called us to be a church family. called us to be a community of believers, and there's a big difference between going to church and being part of the church. And if that's hard to hear, I'm not going to apologize for that. But I want you to just hear me say, I hope by now you know my heart. And know my heart enough to know that what I'm saying, I say because I love you. I say because I know that this is what is best for you. And I'm not trying to stomp on you. I'm trying to lift you up. Because there's no greater blessing than giving to the church. Giving your heart. Certainly giving financially. No, no, giving you to the church. It's greater to give than to receive. More blessed to give than to receive, to quote Jesus. The difference between a church with good services and a church where revival is happening is that the church is doing a community life together. And that sounds rough, and I'm kind of speaking harshly, but revival is happening in our church. And So to be honest with you, this is an amazing church family. Because this is an amazing church family. And so many of you are so bought in. But there are a few that need to hear with the words that I just said. Because I want you to be bought in. It is more blessed to give than to receive. And God has you here for a reason. And it's not just to come at 10 and leave as soon as we're done. And you're like, well, if you'd stop preaching so long... <laughs> We want you to be part of this church community. We want you to join the church if that's something that you have not done yet. It's not just semantics. It's not just putting your name on a piece of paper. It is saying, I want this family to become my family, and we want to love you. Come and pray and serve and absolutely give because it is more blessed to give than to receive. Not giving, please hear me say this, not giving is functional atheism because it is not believing God at his word. It's not believing God at his word. I told you I didn't want to talk today, right? Back in September, I just finished a two-week series on giving, um, which was miserable (laughs) for me because I'm not comfortable talking about those things. I I, I want you to, to do what God leads you to do, and I want God to lead you. I believe that he does to be a giver, to be cheerful and generous and consistent and sacrificial. I believe that he leads all of his people to do that. And so we were in a situation where I think it was important to visit that subject because I don't visit that subject. Uh, And so back in September, when we visited that subject, it took a lot out of me mentally. I'll be honest with you, I don't mind being vulnerable. I think that's part of what your pastor should be. Uh, I'm just like you. It's just that God's called me to the stage with the microphone and uh, I'm just like you are. I'm, I'm vulnerable and weak in so many ways. And when I'm weak, he is strong. I have to lean on that every day. <clears throat> and when I preached that two-part series on giving, it wrecked me on the inside because I did not want to talk about that. Mentally, it took a toll. And my soul was just downright weary. But so right after that, it was so amazing because you responded to that. And that filled my heart up in ways that you can never possibly imagine. And be able to celebrate last week, what a great year it ended up being in our giving. Guys, that just blessed me more than you could. I mean, Brooke could testify. I was just so So happy because you had been obedient and you had blessed me, even though I didn't receive that, it blessed me just to see that that God received that. And so receive this, thank you, receive the blessing of your pastor saying, I'm I'm proud of you for being obedient. But after that, after y'all responded to that, I prayed through that and I decided that I would give my heart and your ears a break from that subject. Uh, I said, we're we're not going to talk about that for a while, but you did respond to that. And so I said, I see now the value. And Danny, we talked, sorry to keep calling you out, man, but we talked about this because Danny's our treasurer and he has an incredibly tender and generous heart, but he understands the value of these things. And we talked through this and I was like, I see the value of talking about this, that it just needs to be put back on the radar of of our church family. And so I said, I'm going to do that from time to time. And I told Danny, we talked about this. I said, and I told God, I said, every February, we're going to talk about this. That was in September. But you know what I also told Danny and I also told God, I'm taking a break this February. We're not going to talk about it because it was just September and we're not going to visit that subject again. Um, That was in September. And in September, I had no idea what the preaching calendar would be. And I knew what the book of Acts held, but I wasn't thinking about this passage. And I just suggest to you that it's not a coincidence. That on the first Sunday of February, we talk about giving the value of expository preaching. God wants you to hear what I'm talking about today. So His Word talks about it. And the value of that is that it's not something that a pastor can avoid just because it makes him uncomfortable. Here we are, first Sunday in February, and for some reason God decided that we should not take a year off. And so I say that to say, maybe today you needed to hear something that we talked about. Maybe today there's something in your life that you haven't quite been obedient with in stewardship. And maybe it's money. Maybe it's possessions. Maybe it's your home. Maybe it's something else. Maybe it's your time. Maybe it's your love. And you've been withholding and not giving. You've been a taker and not a giver. Guys, listen. We only get the gospel if God is a giving God. For God so loved the world that he he gave, right? We only get the gospel, the good news of Jesus, if our God is a giving God. Guys, a life, please listen to this. We're almost done. A life saved by God's generosity will produce godly generosity. A life saved by God's generosity will, it must, produce godly generosity. In other words, If we believe what we claim to believe, we will necessarily cling loosely to the things of this world and store up treasures elsewhere. God does not call us to a character standard that he has not himself perfectly exemplified because you know what Jesus did? Jesus became impoverished to make you rich. Jesus took up a cross to give you a crown. Jesus took up your sin to give you salvation. Guys, the message of the gospel is the, the greatest, most radical, absurd exchange that has ever happened. And it wasn't in an offering plate. It was on a hill called Calvary when Jesus shed his blood so that you wouldn't have to. The good news of the gospel is that we have a giving God. And it is only through the giving heart of our God that we can have a generous offer of salvation. God's not calling you to anything that he has not already perfectly exemplified. So in a world that is deeply divided on so many things, it is important now as ever that we as a church family be united, one heart, one soul. And I'm not talking about behavior. I'm not talking about what we look like. I'm not talking about our background. What are we united by? We are united by the blood of Jesus and the empty grave that gives us hope and life eternal. And part of what that looks like is that if you have been saved by God's generosity, you will produce godly generosity. Or better said, the Spirit of God will produce godly generosity. So, are you ready to not just attend church, but to be the church?